John the Apostle is writing, Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, to Pergamos, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet like burnished bronze when it's been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of many waters." In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And verse 20, by way of explanation, Jesus says, As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And you're going to find this pattern throughout Revelation that when we see a sign, a symbol, some amazing picture, some some portrait that draws out emotion and excites us and, and inspires our curiosity, he will explain what he's talking about. He comes right back around and he says, this by the way is what this means. Jesus always loved to teach in parables. In fact, he taught several parables in Matthew 13. We won't go there right now, but perhaps in a little bit. Parables of the kingdom. And he taught them in such a way that to truly understand them needed faith. You've got to trust me to understand me. You've got to be willing to listen and say, I'm going to put my faith in you to really get what's being said here. And that's part of what's going on in Revelation 2. This is a letter to the church. Understand that. This is a letter to the church, but I'm already out ahead of myself. Let's pray one more time, and we'll see what Jesus has to say this morning. Father, I ask that your spirit would teach us, and Lord Jesus, you would reveal to us the meaning behind the things we're about to look at. And Lord, I especially ask that you would prepare us for the next coming season here. We know your timetable is the one that matters. We know that there may not be a coming season. We simply ask that you prepare our hearts and our minds for the things that we will be studying, if in fact we are studying them, if you linger, if you wait, if you give us more time, if in your patience you allow more opportunity, Lord, we pray that you will prepare us in this morning's study for future teaching to come in the next few weeks. Uh, Give us enlightenment and understanding, so that as we go into the next couple of chapters of the Revelation, We'll see what you're saying. And we'll understand, and Lord, especially, we will walk in the practicality and the application of what is coming. And I ask your Spirit to do this in us, sanctifying us along the way, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The revelation of Jesus Christ, 66 books in the Bible, one revelation. Because the book is about Jesus. And we've been saying that, and I've been repeating that. God intended this to be an unveiling, a revealing, not to be obscure, not to be veiled, not to be confusing. The book of Revelation was given to us for our understanding, and so he provides an unpacking guide for the book. Let's look at it again, verse 19. Therefore write the things which you have seen. What had John seen? Well, we've already studied that. Jesus Christ, in the middle of the lampstands, which he explains in verse 20, is the seven churches. John has seen Jesus in the churches. Jesus says, write that. He says, and write the things which are. And at that time, and even now, that's the church age. Chapters 2 and 3. The things which are. Jesus first walking among the lampstands, which is the church. And then he says, write the things which are, which is the church age right now. And then he writes, and the things which will take place after these things, metatauta, that Greek phrase, after these things. 
What takes place after these things? Well, after what things? After the church age. After chapter 3. Because what's great about the Bible is chapter 4 comes after chapter 3. It always does. And then chapter 5 comes after chapter 4. So after these things, after chapter 3, we enter into chapters 4 and 5 where we get a heavenly vision. And we see the church is there. Interesting. Jesus walking among the lampstands, which is the church in chapter 1. Chapters 2 and 3, all about the church. Chapters 4 and 5, this heavenly vision and the church is there. And I've told you, when we get there, I will prove it to you. You will see the church present in heaven in chapters 4 and 5. Then chapters 6 through 18 is the earthly tribulation. Church is not there. Not a single reference to the church in that entire section of the Revelation. The church is absent. But in chapter 19, the return of the king following the marriage feast of the Lamb to the bride, the church. Church is back in play again. We see the church with him as he returns. Chapter 20, the millennial kingdom and the church reigns and rules with Jesus in that thousand year reign at the end of which there will be final judgment and then chapters 21 and chapter 22 the new heaven, new earth and new Jerusalem which by the way is the zip code of the church and I'll show you that when we get there and we will live with Jesus on into eternity what I'm saying is simply this the revelation One revelation in 66 books is a revelation to the church. It's a revelation to the church. You might ask the question, and I asked it this week, why not to the lost? Why not in the culminating book of all Scripture isn't this written to the lost? And we'll see why. This is a letter to the church. Now we've come to the things which are, chapters 2 and 3. The things which are, part 2 of this, of this outline, of this unpacking guide. The things which are, seven letters, one church. Seven letters, yes, to the seven churches, but they're truly seven letters to one church, or as I'm entitling this study, letters to the church. Because that's what they are. And of all the recipients of all the books and letters and prophecies, in the New Testament at least, these addressees are without question the most significant. Seven letters, one church. Keep your finger there in Revelation chapter 1 and turn back to the book of Ephesians. Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, which ironically is the same church that Jesus writes to, as he begins to write to the seven churches. But look at what Paul has to say to Ephesus at chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Notice what he says. One spirit, verse 4. One Lord, verse 5. One God and Father, verse 6. Unity matters to God. Unity matters to God who is triunified by nature. He is the triune God. He is expressed in the scriptures by way of the Trinity. You've heard the phrase before, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And I'm pausing here for a moment because I need to make a very important theological distinction, especially regarding our teaching two weeks ago. Two weeks back, we heard Jesus saying in Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Well, Alpha and Omega and Lord God, and who is and who was and who is to come, and the Almighty are all things that are spoken of God the Father as well. 
And we made the case and we went through and talked about how this is Jesus talking. And how Jesus completely is aligned with, unified with, one with the Father. I even made the statement that Yeshua is Yahweh and Yahweh is Yeshua. But we need to make a clear distinction. See, Yahweh is Yeshua, also is the Holy Spirit. So you have Father, Son, and Spirit, who, yes, are all one, three persons, one God. And that's vital because God doesn't manifest Himself. It's not simply that He shows up in different modes. That's called modalism. And modalism is an incorrect view of the nature of God. Modalism says that Jesus, when He was here on earth, was simply God in the flesh, the only representation of God. Well, then who was He praying to when He prayed? And when he was baptized, who was speaking from the heavens as the Spirit descended upon him as a dove? You see all three aspects of, all three personalities of, if you will, all three persons of the Trinity in Jesus' baptism. You see, Jesus on the cross, who I said, and correctly so, was God on the cross. God on the cross, and yet he cries out to the Father who's in heaven. Because he is three in one. He's not just one expressing himself in different ways from time to time, depending on the mood that he's in. Modalism denies the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, you may say that's a very subtle thing. We need to understand the way God presents himself and not misrepresent him. And he presents himself as a triune being, one spirit, one Lord, one God and Father who is over all and in all and through all. He is the perfect unity of relationship. What I'm saying is this, unity matters to God because it's who he is. He is a unified being and we cannot overstate the value of unity in the church. We've gotten used to disunity. We've grown accustomed to divisions. We know that denominationalism is just the way that it is. But I don't believe that's the way God desires it to be. Jesus said in John thirteen thirty five, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have many different versions of the church. <laughs> if you love one another. Unity matters to God. And by the way, it's interesting to me that Paul wrote about unity to Ephesus. The first church of the seven that would receive one of these letters, he writes to Ephesus, and Ephesus itself had a problem. If you look at chapter 2 of Revelation, verse 4, this I have against you, you've left your first love. Now that's a love for Jesus, but how can you leave your love for Jesus if you're a follower of Jesus? Very simply, when your love is not manifested in our love. My love for Him is manifested in my love for you. Do you understand that? That I cannot say I love God and not love my brother and my sister. That it's only as I love my brother and my sister that I express my love for God. And so the two are completely connected. And here we have Ephesus, and they've left their first love. There's a love issue going on at Ephesus. Isn't it interesting that Paul wrote to Ephesus about unity? The unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And there's a connection with the things that Paul said to the church at Ephesus when he wrote his letter, and the letter that Jesus now has to write to Ephesus in chapter 2. We'll get there on Wednesday night. But for today, keep this in mind, the unity, the very unity of the Trinity is part of why God is so intent that His church be unified. And in thinking about the church this morning, as we go into the churches here in chapters 2 and 3, understand that at the heart of all of this is a unified family. God's desire for oneness in the church. Remember what Jesus prayed in John 17, that they be one even as you and I, Father, are one. In our previous study, John saw Jesus walking among the seven golden lampstands. Again, look at verse 20, which he defines. He says, as for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, 
Well, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So Jesus is moving among the churches. That is so encouraging to me. To think of the fact that Jesus is there. He's moving among us. He's in and through our fellowship. And He's in and through the fellowship of believers throughout the churches in this area. In this state, in this country, in the world. Jesus is the one who loves to go to church. So whenever you're feeling grumpy and not feeling like going to church, Jesus is the one who's... Man, he's up with the crow, or, or with the... Who? who uh, the rooster. He's up with the rooster crowing. Sorry, it's been a long week. He is up with the rooster. Up with the dawn every Sunday morning, looking forward to being in and with and among the churches. Moving in the lampstands. Now, he also makes comment here, and i got to go back to this just one more time, that there are seven stars. Seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. The seven is a complete number, so it's a picture for the whole church. But there are seven stars as well. And I mentioned before that these stars, which he says are angels, the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches, which means the churches have an angel. You really think that, Rick? Yeah, I really do. But I also like the other application, and I think it completely fits, that the angels may be pastors. I kind of think it's both. I mean, if you're asking my opinion, Rick, what do you think? I think think he assigns angels to the churches. And I think he assigns pastors to the churches. And the pastors are angels. Why do you laugh? The word is angelos in the Greek, and it translates angel or messenger. If I told you this morning that as the pastor of the Bridge Christian Fellowship, I'm a messenger, you'd say, oh yeah, but when I say I'm an angel, you laugh. (laughs) Whatever. Hey, the word angel in Hebrew, in Greek it's angelos, in Hebrew it's malach. You know how malach is translated in the Hebrew? Messenger. So the same word that's translated angel in Hebrew or angel in Greek is also translated messenger in Hebrew and messenger in Greek. And you can see it in the Hebrew Scriptures. Psalm 104 verse 4 says, He makes the winds His messengers, His malach. And yet it translates messengers. And He makes flaming fire His ministers. Now the Hebrew pastor takes that same passage of Psalm 104, he repeats it in Hebrews 1.7, and he says, of the angels, he says... Who makes his angels wins? Angelos, Malach, angels, messengers, and his ministers a flame of fire. We're told in Luke chapter 9, verse 52, that Jesus sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But the word messengers there is Angelos. He just sent messengers ahead to prepare. He didn't send a group of angels to storm into the Samaritan village. It was messengers. I'm making a case for a pastor's angel. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 10, Jesus quotes Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, calling John the Baptist his messenger. I will send my messenger. Malachi uses the word malach. In Matthew 11:10, Jesus uses the word angelos. J the B was a malach. He was an angelos. He was a messenger. So was J the A. John the Apostle is a messenger, even as he writes these letters to the seven churches. And by the way, there's another reason to believe that perhaps the angels of the churches, these stars who are angels of the seven churches, were actually pastors for each one of these seven churches, because each letter is addressed specifically to the angel, if you look at verse 1 of chapter 2, to the angel of the church in Ephesus right. And then if you skip down to verse 8, to the angel of the church in Smyrna right. Or the angel, verse 12, of the church in Pergamos, Right. And every single letter to every single church begins that way. To the angel of the church. Why would Jesus have John format letters, pen letters, to heavenly angels? Couldn't Jesus have just conferred the information to the angels if the angels of the churches were heavenly angels? I think we're talking about earth angels. 
For this reason, the primary role of any pastor is messenger. Messenger of the letters of God. That's what pastors first and foremost are called to do. To be messengers of the letters of God. The priests were as well. Malachi chapter 3 verse 7 says, The lips of a priest should preserve knowledge. And men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts, the Malach, the angel. He's the one who brings the message. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 23, Paul says, As for Titus, he's my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brethren, they are messengers of the churches, a glory to Christ. They are angelos to the churches. The messengers, the word angel is messenger. And in a culture so hung up on stars, these are the stars of the kingdom. Okay, star pastor. What are you getting at, Rick? This is really important. Where are the seven stars? They're in his right hand. Look at verse 20 again. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand. The stars are in the hand of Jesus. And if any pastor... Any leader, any messenger has any wisdom or insight or value in teaching. As a light for a local lampstand, it is only because he remains in good hands. Speaking the words of Christ. That what you hear is not drummed up by me or by any pastor. But as pastors teach the word of God... They are used by God to light up the church. I want to bring it even closer in, though, and listen to what Charles Spurgeon said about this. I love this quote. He says, what do you see in Christ's right hand? Seven stars. And yet, and yet, how insignificant they appear when you get a sight of his face. Why? What does his face look like? Well, we just saw the sun shining in all its strength. Oh yeah, he's got seven stars in his right hand, but how they pale in comparison. When the sun is shining in the middle of the day, do you see the stars? Not at all. All you see is the sun. Spurgeon says, who can see seven stars? Or for for that matter, 70,000 stars when the sun shineth in his strength. How sweet it is when the Lord himself is so present in a congregation that the preacher, whoever he may be, is altogether forgotten. I pray you, dear friends, when you go to a place of worship, always try to see the Lord's face rather than the stars in his hand. Look at the sun and you will forget the stars. So John, himself a star, an angel, a messenger, is writing these letters to the stars, the angels, the messengers of these seven churches, which again is a picture of the complete church. And John has a pastor's heart. That's obvious in all of his letters. And John was clearly personally attached We even see this historically, personally attached to these seven church fellowships. After his release from Patmos, we believe that he made his way back to Ephesus, and then he began to circle among, specifically, these seven churches. But it's not John's attachment that caused him to write these seven letters. No, in fact, Jesus is the one who sent these letters. Jesus is the one who addressed these letters, not John at all. These letters weren't his call. They weren't for him to decide. That was up to Jesus. John was just an angelos, a messenger of the Messiah, a scribe for the Savior. Back in verse 11 of Revelation chapter 1, Jesus said, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos. I know it says Pergamum. I'm going to say Pergamos because that's the, the literal word. And to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Jesus addressed these, which begs a big question. Why these seven? You ever stop to think about that? Why not the church in Jerusalem? They didn't get a letter. Why not the church in Capernaum? 
Man, the, the seed ground of Jesus' ministry. Or the church in Caesarea by the sea. Oh, there's a big, big gathering, big fellowship met there. Or, or the church up in Antioch, you know, from which Paul was sent out. Why these seven churches specifically? You've got to ask that question. Because they're intentional letters. Jesus obviously wanted it to go to these seven and only these seven. And more than these seven. Because as you know, there is a completeness here. I want us to understand why, before we even get into the letters, which we will begin to on Wednesday, why these seven? Number one, Jesus addressed these letters historically. And as we've already talked about, seven literal churches along a Roman postal route in the Roman colonies of what has been called Asia Minor. It's not Asia. They call it Asia Minor, but it's Western Turkey today. To the west side of Turkey, right near the Aegean Sea. In fact, Ephesus was right on the coast of the Aegean Sea. And if you go up from there to Smyrna, it was right on the coast as well. But if you follow it through, it circles around. And it was a postal route. So, that's nice. You know, the letters can get from one church to the next very quickly. But only seven churches there are chosen. I I wonder about, what what about the church of Colossae? They're not mentioned. That's near to Laodicea. That's in that same area. No, it's only these seven. And where it starts to get intriguing is when we realize that Jesus addressed these letters corporately. So he addressed them historically, but he addresses them corporately, seven letters indicating one complete church. You'll see the number seven show up all the time. Well, in all the writings of John, but especially in the Revelation. Seven is significant. And these letters are corporate in nature in that every church can relate. Every church across 2,000 years can apply these dispatches. Can learn from what Jesus has to say to these seven. Every church goes through some or all of what Jesus talks about in these letters. What these churches were experiencing. How they were functioning. What they were doing, what Jesus addresses, we here, the Bridge Fellowship, can learn so much, which is why we're slowing up for the next few weeks. And we're going to take the time to go through each church. In fact, what we're going to do, here's the pattern. Wednesday nights, we're going to do the letter to the church. Sunday, we're going to do the postscript. Because the letter, there's going to be a P.S., So on Sundays, we'll do the P.S. to the letter that we do on Wednesdays. The only exception is Smyrna, which we'll do probably all on one Sunday. But week by week, Wednesday night, we'll go through all of the nuances of the letter. And then the following Sunday, we'll do a final follow-up to the letter. To understand and to do our best not to miss what Jesus is saying to the Bridge Christian Fellowship. You see, we can forget our first love. Like Ephesus. Because of our own doctrinal fervor or our our discipline or our business strategies, we can start to forget about Jesus and get into the weeds a bit. So we got to be aware of that. We, as this fellowship, can, have, will struggle against persecution, slander, things that are said that are not true against us, things that, that can hurt. Oh, some churches will commingle with culture. That needs to be called out. Others even go so far as to embrace idolatry. That's got to be called out. Some churches start off well but end up snoozing or dead. That's got to be dealt with. Others will take God's Word right through the open door of the Great Commission. That's my desire for us, like Philadelphia. And others get so watered down, they become tasteless and bland and lukewarm, like Laodicea. All these churches, all these issues... And to every single one, seven times, Jesus says in Revelation 2, verses 7, 11, 17, 29, Revelation 3, verse 6, 13, and 22, He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All the churches. If you've got an ear, listen up. The corrections and encouragements in these letters can reveal the life or the death of a church. These letters will tell us where we are as a church. So the application is intense. 
And any church, any fellowship, any ministry can learn from the instruction of Jesus to the seven churches. So can any Christian. That's the third thing to note. Not only is it historical and corporate, Jesus addressed these letters personally. These are personal letters. That is to you, to me, in our personal lives. Again, listen to what he says. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He is singular. He is to the individual. That is to you and to me. Eight times in the Gospels, Jesus says, He who has ears, let him hear. Interesting. In the Gospels, Jesus said, He who has ears, let him hear. And in the Revelation, He says, He who has an ear. Which means you only need one. It also means, perhaps, that by the time Revelation was written in the late 90s, some ears had already fallen off. People were not listening. He is calling out to those who are even half listening, listen up, pay attention. Remember what happened in Gethsemane? Luke twenty-two fifty. One of them, we know it was Peter because John tells us, struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And Jesus answered and said, stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and he healed him. The Gospels tell us his name was Malchus. Probably tells us his name because he probably became a Christian. <laughs> I would. <laughs> his ear restored. You see, Jesus is the restorer of hearing. He's the one who heals the ear that's clogged, the ear that has fallen off, the ear that has gone deaf. It's what Jesus does. It's what He always did. It's why even the prophecies of Messiah prophesy one who would come healing the deaf. Isaiah 29.18 On that day the deaf will hear words of a book and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. Isaiah 35 verse 5 The eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. So, so if you become a little tone deaf, if you're a little hard of hearing, these seven letters from Jesus can open your ears. They can help the heedless. But the most important thing to me, the most intriguing revelation, if you will, in the seven letters, is not just that they are addressed historically, they are, or corporately, they are, or personally, yes they are, but these are addressed prophetically. Prophetically. This is where I start to get a little excited. For you see, in these seven letters are seven successive stages of the church across 2,000 years. And it's unmistakable. Unfolding as in this time, in the time of the things which are, we see the seven churches unfolding. Why Jesus chose these seven for prophetic reason that we look at the church age and we can overlay them from Pentecost to the Parousia. From Shavuot to the second coming. We can see Jesus speaking to the entirety of the church. Listen to this, Ephesus. You may want to jot this down. We'll refer to it again. But you note takers, Ephesus means darling. It's a term of endearment. Darling, sweetheart. Ephesus can also be translated overseer, which means your shepherds here at the bridge are sweethearts. <laughs> Ephesus is the apostolic church. Now, those of you who remember, you remember transparencies? Remember back in the days before computers we had transparencies? You may not realize this, but when this fellowship started in the barn, we used transparencies in worship. Talk about old school. We didn't even use, you know, slides and projectors. We just had a guy, you know, in fact, I think it was often Jeff or Russ sitting up there on the, with a little transparency, switching the, the page, you know. You can do this with these seven letters. They overlay as if you looked at the entire age of the church like transparencies. And you can see what, what is behind this. Ephesus, the darling church. Ephesus is the apostolic church. The first century church. This is the church from A.D. 30 to about 100. So 30 to 100, right in that area, as Jesus comes in, as He says, I will build my church, and as the church is birthed at Pentecost, 
And from that point forward all the way to 100, this is the first century church, Ephesus. As if Jesus is writing a letter speaking to the church, the darling church, the sweetheart church, the beginning of the church, the overseer church, the apostolic church. Secondly, Smyrna. Smyrna means myrrh. Myrrh, the sweet scent of myrrh, is only uh, released when it's crushed. And Smyrna is the persecuted church. Or the suffering church. 100 to 312 A.D. In that time, countless millions of Christians were martyred for their faith. We'll talk about that as we get into the study in Smyrna. Smyrna, the, the persecuted church. Ephesus, the apostolic church. Ephesus from 30 to 100. Smyrna from 100 to about 312. Something happened in 312. Something I'll talk about in a future study. But things changed for the church as suddenly the state embraced the church. And the church embraced the state. And we have Pergamos. Pergamos, which means... It's from gamos, which is marriage in the Greek. Pergamos can mean elevated marriage. You see, for the first time, the church now had a handle on the world stage. The church now is married to the state, protected. The persecution ceases, and everybody begins to say, now the church can do what we're supposed to do. All right, now now we have some political clout. Let me warn you against the church ever becoming political. Well, we can have our political views, no doubt. And we can lean one way or another. And where politics gets into the area of morality and spirituality, well, then we need to go with Scripture. And I've told you many times over the years, when it's time to vote, vote the Bible. Vote by faith. Vote what Jesus would vote. But when the church starts to get political, the church always gets into trouble. Always. So be careful with that. And be aware of that. And if you're engaged in politics, again, I'm not saying not to be. I'm saying, that's not the business of the church. The business of the church is to save the lost. To go after those, left or right, who don't know Jesus. But Pergamos means elevated marriage. It can also mean earthly marriage. You see, the flesh, the earth, we all think that it's elevated to become powerful. And the church did become powerful at that time from about 312 to 606 A.D. The church and the state, the church and Rome, married up together. We'll look at that. Now, the first three of the seven churches, rooted in history, these first three churches, and spanning the first 600 years or so of the church, no longer exist. Now, historically and and corporately and personally, we can make application. But prophetically, these churches no longer exist. The final four do. You see, you come to Thyatira. The church of Thyatira. And Thyatira means perpetual sacrifice. Perpetual sacrifice? This is the idolatrous church. When the church really began to embrace pagan ideas. And even in the idea of perpetual sacrifice, the ongoing crucifixion over and over of Jesus Christ that is still practiced today by some, Thyatira, 606, all the way to present time. I'll show you why I believe that. Sardis, that's church number five of the seven. Sardis, which means remnant. Remnant. Sardis. 1520 to present. Sardis. Oh, the church of the Reformation. You might call it the dead church. The dead church. 1520 to present. Still presently functioning at work in the world. Thyatira. Still that idolatrous church functioning present in the world. And then you come to Philadelphia. Church of brotherly love. That's what Philadelphia means, brotherly love. And this is the faithful church from about 1750 to present. Rick, where are you pulling these dates from? We'll see. With each church, I'll explain why these dates and how we see it as we lay the transparency of the church over the church age, over history. It becomes very clear. 
of Philadelphia, 1750 to present. There's still a Philadelphia church at work in the world right now. I pray that we are the church of Philadelphia. That the Bridge Christian Fellowship embraces the same attitude of brotherly love, of going through the open door, of taking out the Great Commission, and not just holding up in our own private little spot. Philadelphia. 1750 to present. And then the last church is Laodicea. Laodicea is the lukewarm church from 1900 to present. Laodicea, get this, means the rights of the people. People's rights. Interesting. All four variations of the four final churches, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, are still present and functioning as churches in the world today. Well, how do we know? And how do we know that just four of these continue all the way to the second coming, whereas the first three don't really apply beyond their time span? Because in the last four letters, Jesus specifically mentions the tribulation, He mentions His second coming, and with Philadelphia, He mentions the rapture of the church. All these are end-time prophecies, promises, mentions that we don't see in the first three churches. We're going to see it play out in the next few weeks. I wanted to lay that out for you and give you kind of that that basis for understanding. But get this, understand this. We can easily think that Jesus favors one church over another. Wouldn't you imagine Philadelphia? It's got to love those guys. Laodicea, (laughs) (laughs) Ephesus, the darling church. Sardis, dead. I mean, I would have an opinion about the. I don't want to be Laodicea. I don't want to be Sardis. You know? Philadelphia. Jesus must love Philadelphia more. I mean, let's put it this way. Clearly, he favors the Bridge Christian Fellowship over all others. Right? This church fellowship is his favorite one on Whidbey Island and Pidalgo. I mean, doesn't Jesus play favorites? Of course he does not. What Jesus said was, upon this rock, I will build my church. Singular, my church. One church. Seven letters, one church. And the church is not the evangelicals or the traditional or the denominational or the Catholic or otherwise. The church are those who are built together by Jesus Christ. Those walking in faith in Jesus Christ. That's the church. And we are a fellowship of the church. We are part of the church. But never forget that Jesus loves the whole church. I can drive down the road, I can see a church and go, yeah, I wouldn't do it that way. And Jesus loves those folks. I can see a church that I know is just, man, they are barely teaching truth. And Jesus loves them. And it really affects my attitude toward other Christians of other fellowships and even other denominations and other perspectives. It affects my attitude to realize Jesus loves His church. Ephesus to Laodicea. All aspects of the whole church. And and He's working to build up the whole thing. That's, That's His intention with the church in the world. And so... There's a systematic five-part format to every one of these letters. And you'll see this play out as well. I'm going to go ahead and give it to you right now. He begins each letter with a component of his character. Just a component. Not his whole character. In fact, what we see that John describes that he saw in chapter 1, verses 12 through 16... All that character of of Jesus and what He looked like, we see that in little bits and pieces in every single one of the letters. And He begins each one that way with a component of His character, which I think is wonderful. Why? Why does He do it that way? Well, remember, it's still the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's still revealing Himself to the churches, but He's revealing Himself with each aspect of the church in a way that is exactly what they need to hear. You know he does it right here? He talks to the church here at the bridge. He speaks to us in a way we need to hear. He deals with us in the way that we need to be dealt with. 
I, I, I think that's so wonderful. It's so personal. He really does care about this fellowship. Not more than any other, but certainly not less. And he deals with each one, and, and what he reveals of himself is what we need to hear. Note this, verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven lampstands, says this, and he begins to speak to Ephesus. He's reminding Ephesus, I'm the one who holds the pastors. They're not teaching my word, they're out of my hands. (laughs) I'm the one that holds them, and I am moving in the churches. And Ephesus, you've got to remember that. To Smyrna, he says in verse 8, Oh, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life. That's exactly what a suffering church would need to hear, isn't it? Hey, I suffered right through the cross. I was dead. I get what you're going through. But I've come to life and I am your Lord. You can trust me in this. And then if you look further on to Pergamos. In verse 12, he writes to this this Pergamos church. He says, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Oh, He's revealing himself in a sharp way there. Well, Pergamus needed to hear him reveal himself that way. Or skip down to verse 18. To Thyatira, he he refers to himself as the Son of God who has the eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. Here comes the judge. Thyatira needed to see Jesus coming in such judgment, in such array. Chapter 3, verse 1. To Sardis, He describes himself as he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. He's got his hands on the pastors. But he's also the one who has the Holy Spirit. Sardis is the dead church. And any church without the Holy Spirit is dead. That's what Sardis needed to hear. So he presents himself, that component of his character. Verse 7. He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens, while he's speaking to Philadelphia, the church that is marching out the door. It's exactly what Philadelphia needed to hear. And then in verse 14, to Laodicea, he calls himself the Amen. The faithful and true witness. The beginning of the creation of God. Why would he call himself the beginning of the creation of God to Laodicea? Well, you're going to have to come back when we talk about Laodicea and and we'll we'll discuss why. But again, every church hears the component of the character of Christ that they need to hear and each trait relates to that church. And here's a quick point about this. When you, when I, when we find ourselves getting off course or getting into trouble or even getting into some suffering or persecution, the first thing we need to do is recall the character of Christ. The first thing we do is turn and look to Jesus. See who He is because who He is will affect who you are. Who He is will show us what we are to be about. Just looking at Jesus restores focus when focus is lost. So he begins every letter this way, with a, with a component of his character. Oh, by the way, one other thing. All these different components of his character given to these seven different churches, you know what you have to do to get the full picture of Jesus? Put them together. We get the best picture of Jesus Christ when the church is unified. We see him in totality when we gather together before Him. So He gives everyone a component of His character, and then secondly, a confident commendation. That is, each church is going to get a confidence-boosting commendation from Jesus. Each one, He's got something good to say with one stark exception. Laodicea. Jesus has nothing good to say about Laodicea. A component of His character, a confident commendation, number three. A corrective condemnation. Every church gets one. They get called out for their issues, their problems. All of them, except two. The Lord has nothing negative to say to suffering Smyrna or faithful Philadelphia. Those two churches get no negative from Jesus. But all the others, they get correction, they get some negative In fact, he gives, number four, a clear correction. After bringing a corrective condemnation, a correction, look at verse 19 of chapter 3. 
Jesus says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. Which proves to us that Jesus loves Laodicea because they're the ones He says that to. I love you. And I love you so much, I'm going to bring discipline. So I reprove. Deaf churches that are loveless or compromising or idolatrous or dead or even bland, Jesus loves. He loves them enough to correct. And maybe that's you right now. Maybe right now Jesus is squaring off with you. Maybe you're feeling some... You're feeling some correction. You're feeling like some discipline is going on in your life. Understand that Jesus, in the sanctifying process, will fight for your soul and spirit persistently with loving discipline. He disciplines those whom He loves. And why? Because for all of that, He ends each letter for for the component of His character. Again, giving a confident commendation, a corrective condemnation, a clear correction. Every single letter ends with a coming confirmation. A promise that will be fulfilled in His return for anyone who has an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And in fact, the entire Revelation ends that way. Revelation 22, verse 12. Behold, I'm coming quickly, he says, and my reward is with me to render according to every man, to every man according to what he has done. In other words, and get this, listen. The letter of Revelation, the book of Revelation, isn't just a Bible study. It is call and response. Jesus is looking for a response from you, from me, to this call. A change in us. Either a redirecting or a strengthening of direction. A building of faithfulness. A clearing out of hearing. Whatever is necessary. And He's already doing it innocent among us. I'm already hearing stories. I'm hearing back from people who are saying, this happened or this is going on or or, or, I see this taking place and it's during this Revelation study. Yeah, because it's call and response. Jesus is calling out to the church. And the church can respond. And as the end draws near, and we need to know Christ will come, and everything that is written in this letter will come to pass. Chapter 1 already has. Chapters 2 and 3 are underway. In fact, I think we're toward the very end. We're in the season of the Laodicea, and the Philadelphia, and the Sardis, and the Thyatira. But we are toward the end of all of this. And it is going to happen. And so the question is, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about what you hear in the revelation of Jesus Christ? It is a letter to the listening church. And it is sent out to open up the ears of His people. Back to verse 20 of chapter 1. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, And the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And remember that Jesus, that John saw Jesus in and among the lampstands. Verse 13, in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man. Chapter 2, verse 1, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, he's in the middle of the church. He is involved and engaged with the church. He is fully aware of everything that's going on in this church fellowship. Everything. I'm not. I'm just a little star. I'll not use that so much but I really don't know what's going on in everybody's life I can't possibly he does he knows what's happening in this church he knows what's happening in in aspects of this church and areas of this fellowship and the whole church in the same way he knows he sees he hears he knows he knows how do you know he knows Note this, in verse 2 of chapter 2, Jesus says to Ephesus, I know your deeds, and your toil, and your perseverance. Skip down to verse 9. He says to Smyrna, 
I know your tribulation. Let's get down to verse 13. He says to Pergamos, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Let's get down to verse 19. He says to Thyatira, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. Let's get down to chapter 3, verse 1. He says to Sardis, He says, I know your deeds, verse 1, that you have a name, that you're alive, but you're dead. He says down in verse 8 to Philadelphia, I know your deeds. He says to the church of Laodicea down in verse 15, I know your deeds. Every single church, Jesus says, I know. I know. I know what's going on. Jesus knows the whole church. He knows historically. He knows the whole church corporately. He knows the whole church personally. And He knows the whole church prophetically. He knows right where you are, right what's going on, right here, right now, Jesus knows you. And the bridge. And the church. And knowing you, His desire, I believe, for all of us is to build us up and send us out. So that we are all angel messengers. Here's how it all works out. Go over to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13. Verse 3. Jesus spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some fell beside the road, and some birds came and ate them up. Others, other seed, that is, fell on the rocky places, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil, and it yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And Jesus begins to speak in parables with this first one. And of course... His disciples, whose ears were a little clogged, said, what does this mean? Explain this. Why are you speaking to them in parables? He says in verse 11, well, to you it's been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has to him, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance, but whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. What are you talking about, Jesus? Faith. you got faith. If you trust me, The more you trust me, the more is going to be given to you. The less you trust me, the less you're going to get. And the less you're going to understand. And then he finally goes on to explain to them the parable of the sower, as we call it. He says, hear then the parable of the sower. Verse 18. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away what has been sown in his heart. So we know right there that the seed is the Word of God. That the soil is the heart. It says this is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. Verse 20. The one on whom seed was sown in the rocky places, this is the man who hears the Word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but it's only temporary. And when when affliction or persecution arises because of the Word, immediately he falls away. The one on whom seed was sown among the thorns. This is the man who hears the word. And the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom seed was sown in the good soil. Again, the soil of the heart. This is the man who hears the word and understands it. Who, in, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold and some sixty and some thirty. The seed. The seed is the word of the kingdom. Who's the sower? See, we would assume that Jesus is the sower. I would say to you, it's anyone who sows the word of the kingdom. It's anyone who shares the gospel of Jesus Christ becomes a sower of the word. 
A sower of the truth of the kingdom. It's pastors and preachers and Sunday school teachers. (laughs) It's small group leaders. It's friends in a coffee house. It's family. Sowers. And as we began this study, I asked you a simple question. Why wasn't the book of Revelation written to the lost? Why is this book so obviously written to the church? And it's because Jesus knows that it is through people that people get saved. It is in relationship, one person at a time, one sharing of the gospel at a time, in honest-to-goodness relationships, that's where salvation gets saved. That's where people are sowing the Word. You might not even think of yourself as a sower. But when you're talking to someone who's struggling with faith or who does not believe, and you're sharing Jesus, you're sprinkling seed all over them. And the hope and the prayer is that that seed will get into the heart. And the heart will be open to receive it. Which is why intercession is so important in the sharing of the gospel, because we're praying for open hearts. We're just asking the Lord to help them hear. I have conversations up front many times. People say, this person in my life, or this person doesn't believe, and I just don't even know what to pray. And the first thing I say is, pray that their heart is open. And then pray that God sends a sower into their life. You, or if they will not listen to you, pray that God surrounds them with annoying Christians. People just sprinkling seed all over them. And that the heart is open because that's how it works. That is how. That is why Jesus sends His church. He does not send us out as peddlers or pushers or hawkers or traders. He sends us as sowers. In the world, in this field, as Paul wrote in Romans 10.14, how will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, Isaiah 52 verse 7, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. And that's why we're still here. That's why the church still exists at this age of the world. It's to have beautiful feet. As we are sent, these kingdom letters, sent to emissaries of the kingdom to proclaim the word of the kingdom to the world that prepares the world and prepares the church for the kingdom to come. Seven letters. One church. Seven letters. Hmm. That's interesting. Well, in Matthew 13, Jesus tells seven kingdom Parables. Do you suppose that there is a parallel? We'll see. Let's stand together. Lord Jesus, some of us have ears that have fallen off. Some of us have ears, Lord, that are hard of hearing. They're clogged by the things of the world. Oh, Father, I'm guilty of this distracted by the issues of life. Lord, would you clear out our ears to hear? For those who have not been able to listen, perhaps, perhaps, Father, there's, there's going to be someone here this morning whose ear was lopped off by a well-meaning Christian who just got a little hyper. Kind of like Peter. I pray for healing of hearing. And I ask, Father, for softening of soil. And I pray that the seed of your word will begin to infiltrate the lives of all that need to hear. And that beginning right here with us. Lord, you have privileged us to be a church fellowship of your larger church. You have privileged us to receive these seven letters. And to pour over them and to consider what this means to our fellowship and to us personally in our lives. You've done that. And we we count ourselves, Lord Jesus, as so blessed to be recipients of Your Word. So my, my desire, Lord, this morning, and my prayer is that our time today will prepare us for what You're about to say. We've already heard and seen amazing things in this revelation. Lord Jesus, just to, to get a glimpse of You in glory was stunning enough. But these are, are days that, Lord, we need to get down to brass tacks and that's what You're bringing in these letters. I pray You prepare us for it. 
Soften our hearts. Open our ears. Get us ready. And Lord, if there is anyone among us this morning who does not believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who has not confessed Him as Lord and and believed, Lord Jesus, in Your resurrection, Holy Spirit, we ask You to move and soften hearts that the seed will get in. And Lord, it is as valuable to us if it's one person or a thousand. We rejoice with the angels in heaven as your messengers here on earth with every individual person who is saved by the blood of Jesus. And that is our heart's desire and we pray for that even this morning. Move among us. Save the lost. Encourage the found. In Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus knows you. Do you know Him? Do you know Him as your Lord? Have you accepted Him as your Savior? If you haven't, today's the day. Give your heart to Jesus. Come and pray with us. And we'll pray that you can receive His Lordship. Come under His covering, His complete forgiveness, His grace. Maybe there's someone that you are just laboring for in prayer. Bring that name. And we'll pray together for that person. And there may be any number of other things. We always like to keep this wide open. But there may be anything else going on in your life. You may need prayer for for healing. You may just desire to have more power in your life to, to bring the message of Jesus. You may have never been baptized. You and Jesus, you know what's going on. If we can pray together, please come while we sing this song.